Welcome to The Joe Cohen Show. Join me as I share my experience with biohacking and invite top health experts to explore the latest technology, supplements, research, and resources for optimizing your body and brain. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Andrew Herr. Andrew is the founder and CEO of Fount. Fount runs the most comprehensive and customized health and performance programs in the world. Previously, Andrew led human performance and biotech safety and strategy efforts for the U.S. military from running R&D strategy efforts to getting Navy SEALs ready to deploy. Andrew's work has been profiled and published by Wired, Joint Force Quarterly, Defense News, and others, and he has been honored as a mad scientist by the U.S. Army twice. As a fellow by the Synthetic Biology Leadership Excellence Accelerator Program, and as an emerging leader in biosecurity, Andrew also serves as an adjunct assistant professor at Georgetown University, where he teaches about human performance and advanced military technology. I brought Andrew on the podcast to discuss how he improves human performance for the Navy SEALs, how he uh, improves performance in anybody in, in these. He also uh, coaches CEOs and executives. And so I want to get his take on what he does and how he improves people's performance. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Andrew. Thanks, Joe. Great to be here. Awesome. So let's get started on, um, yeah, maybe, maybe you could walk me through your journey with the Navy SEALs, how you got started with them, and what you exactly did for them. I always say if I lived my life 10 times, I would have been a doctor five of them. My dad's a doctor and I grew up around them. Uh, my mom's side of the family's got a long military history. My grandfather won everything short of the Medal of Honor in World War II. So, you know, it was really present growing up. And so ended up finding a program where I could go to school for science, technology, national security. Then graduate school, I went deeper and did graduate work in health physics and immunology, national security policy. And somebody walks into the career center one day and says, hey, we need someone who does biology, social security, and can run. And they're like, well, we know this guy, Andrew. Um, and so I got hired to run a studies program on the future of human performance for the Secretary of Defense. And so that was my entree into this human performance world. Interesting. Okay. And how long have you been in the field uh, writing about human performance, working for the Navy SEALs or the Navy in general? Uh, so I worked with a variety of um, military services, Air Force, Secretary of Defense's office, um, and did seven years in and out of the Pentagon. And then since then, um, have been working with, you know, executives and entrepreneurs, as well as pro sports teams like the Dodgers and USA Soccer um, and a variety of other groups. Everybody wants to enhance their performance. So tell me about, like, what do you think the uh like okay so you're into human performance i'm into human performance we're both i would i would call us human performance athletes right we're, we're both trying to get an edge in a whole bunch of ways and we're pretty dedicated to this field uh and so i kind of have a lot of opinions about you know i i think that people don't realize how much they can improve human performance regular everyday people what's your kind of take on that in terms of human performance, what do you think people can improve quite dramatically that people don't realize how much they can improve it? 
Uh, so first, 100% agree. There's a huge runway for almost everybody. One of my favorite examples is, you know, we work with some elite athletes, um, pro athletes, and they have whole teams working for them. And then you'll find out somebody's doing something like cold plunging right after a strength training workout, which means you're going to lose, you know, maybe up to 30 to 50% of the value of that workout. So I think almost everybody has room to run here. Um, areas I think people can improve. You know, we see 10 things that people primarily come to us from. Um, and some of them you can notice effects right away and some take longer, but energy, focus, mood, sleep, gut health, Obviously, longevity is big right now. Fertility, we're seeing 20% increases in follicle numbers for women who are um, doing egg freezing and then, you know, muscle fat. And then I think a big one right now, maybe my top one these days is stress management. And we have all these like, you know, the, the financial markets, the venture capital markets, the economy are all very different than they were a year or two ago. And so seeing stress levels really rise and there's tons of tools you can use to lower your stress levels and keep performance super high. Okay, that's really interesting. Uh, you mentioned fertility. Have you ever checked, or do you ever check sperm motility or any kind of sperm metrics in the people you coach? Yeah, and yourself fair. as well. Um, I've actually never done mine. I'm not quite ready to have kids yet. So, you know, when I am though, I will absolutely test those and then run experiments if there's any need to. But we definitely do see that, it's, you know, if the goal of a client is fertility, um, you got to know where, you know, if it's a couple, where the challenge is coming from. Is it, is it the woman? Is it both? And how do you, and there's definitely protocols to help each of them. Okay. Uh, so I like a lot of the topics that you brought up and I want to go through them one by one and, and see what you think. I guess, uh, you know, I, I actually don't know just for the audience. I don't know any of your opinions beforehand. <laughs> and so, Amazing. uh, most likely, you know, uh, th there's there's a reasonable chance that we might have different opinions on various uh, topics, or or they, we could have the same opinion on everything. I wouldn't know, so I'm I'm very I'm kind of very just curious on picking your brain and trying to see where what matches up with my experience, or you know, uh, so something like uh, stress management. What do you think? What what's the top things that you do for stress management? Let's say. Absolutely. So um, run through. If the person is fasting and their stress hormone levels are high or their psychogenic stress levels are high, we're going to often get people to eat more frequently. Um, we find that especially like intermittent fasting, you know, not eating in the morning can drive stress hormone levels higher, especially if you have cognitively demanding stuff in the morning. Doesn't mean you can't do like two or three day fasts at other times, just you're doing it every day. Often we find it sets you up for pain later in the afternoon. Um, one I'm of one major, of those people, by the way. You know, one of the major yeah. things we do see is if you have an energy dip like around three or four, but not right after lunch, then often that's a not eating in the morning problem. Um, breath work, and meditation. I'd say for the people who have a hard time sitting down to meditate, we'll start with breath work. Um, but some people, you know, there's definitely highly variable responses. Some people do better with each of them. Really intense breath work can be tough for trauma survivors, for example, um, and some meditation may be better there. So, you know, really depends. I'd say from there, you know, supplements, you know, we're using things like amino acids, L-theanine, we're using um, things like cocoflavanols that can break the link between stress hormones and inflammation, can also lower cortisol in some people. Um, we're looking at whether caffeine is helping or hurting you. 
I don't really have a problem with caffeine in general, but if you have higher stress or anxiety levels, some people cutting out caffeine can be a big win there. Okay, interesting. And what do you think is more useful in, in your opinion on average, uh, lifestyle or supplements for stress? I mean, I obviously live in the yes camp to both, but, um, you know, it depends on whether somebody can make the lifestyle changes. Sometimes we'll start with the supplements to help, you know, smooth the rails a little bit and make it easier to boot up into the lifestyle stuff. And then there's some really cool combinations. We'll use things like theanine before meditation or breath work to make it easier to drop in. Um, for people who have a hard time focusing, sometimes post-exercise meditation can also be really nice. Because then you have the enhanced neuroplasticity from the exercise, BDNF and other stuff. And then you meditate where you're getting, you're sort of leveraging those neuroplastic effects. So I really like the combination. Um, I'd say on average, the lifestyle things are more powerful, but the supplements help too. And sometimes can be a nice first. Yeah. Um, I mean, I kind of see that I, I kind of, uh, agree in some way, uh, based on what I see in other people for me personally, and this is kind of where I know you're very big into individual personalization. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm the same way for me personally, I felt it's almost, it's, it's all biochemical. So nothing that I've done lifestyle wise has actually had a, a significant impact. Um, I'd say like there's, you, you could put it into the self-help camp stuff, right? And then you didn't really talk about that stuff, but there's a lot of people who do like, you know, think positive thoughts and that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, and, and then, then I would say that therapy can also be really psychotherapy. Powerful. Yeah, sure. And then there is the, you know, the stuff that like has a stronger impact on physiology, like breathing exercises and maybe cold plunges or, you know, or just exercising in general. That's like the lifestyle stuff. And then there is the, you know, pharmaceutical, nutraceutical approach. For me personally, the nutraceutical approach uh, helped like by far more than any other stuff. And so I think it really makes a difference in this area what um, like what your biochemistry is like. Some people respond really well to the nutraceuticals or farms, you know, nutraceuticals, I think, are, are almost always good enough. Um, and, and some people respond well to uh, the lifestyle stuff. Um, what, what do you find that in your clients that some people really just respond well to the nutraceuticals much better? hundred percent. I mean, you know, we, everything we do is end of one experimentation. So we collect data, run experiments for you. I don't, I don't want to know, like, it doesn't help me that much other than to choose experiments, what the average of a bunch of other people who aren't you are doing, right? Like, be like, you never want to run a company based on the average of your competitors. It wouldn't make any sense. So right. yeah, we absolutely see people who have dramatic responses, supplements. And what you just described is amazing. Like it means you don't have to spend time on all these lifestyle things. If they're not that impactful <laughs> for you, why waste that time? If they don't matter that much, boom, the supplements do it for you. Love it. So yeah, we absolutely see people who are on both ends of the spectrum. I mean, we see people who get paradoxical effects from the supplements where it actually makes them worse. And then that's fine. We just find another tool. Um, so 100%, we see both. Well, it would depend on what supplements, though. That's really what it comes down to, right? They all yes, work in different although ways. although I would say some that are generally very effective for the stress hormone stuff will cause weird. We Basically, there's not one supplement we use where we don't see it negatively affect somebody. 
Um, but that's what mm. you'd expect, right? People have such different physiologies. And so we just stop that supplement and see if there's others or see the lifestyle stuff. So I'm totally with you on customization. I think uh, it's a little hard to, uh, just my personal opinion, right? Um, to get around low serotonin. I feel like that's where, uh, you know, like let's say if you're, some, depression or low mood could be from many things, as you know, right? It could be from low BDNF. It could be low from lower norepinephrine, lower serotonin. I feel like there's ways to uh, increase dopamine, BDNF, norepinephrine. Serotonin, I feel like you need, a, you need more of that raw material from tryptophan or 5-HTP in order to boost that serotonin based on what I've seen and, and also just from people who are lower serotonin types. Uh, they, it seems like it's, it's harder to get around that from like uh, lifestyle hacks. I, I wonder if you have any opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, definitely see people who are very strong responders to the serotonin precursors. Um, super interesting also that that pathway is the melatonin pathway too. So I don't know if you see in those people also major effects on sleep because if they're not, they don't have enough going through the serotonin pathway, they're not going to have enough melatonin either. And so- Absolutely, absolutely. We also, there's some really cool things you can use to also- shunt tryptophan into that pathway and not have it go into the kynurian pathway. So some of the um, compounds in tart cherry juice actually shunt tryptophan towards that pathway and towards the melatonin serotonin pathway. So not only like mm. definitely can be supplementation, but also, you know, preventing it from going down the wrong pathway. Interesting. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Um, with the, uh, so the tart cherry, you're saying takes the tryptophan and, and it makes it more likely, likely to convert to serotonin. And yeah, melatonin so or just serotonin? blocks it from going into the kynurenin pathway, which is an alternate pathway to ending up in melatonin. Okay, interesting. I actually uh, didn't know that. I mean, I've, I've heard that tart cherry can help with sleep, but I didn't realize that that was because it was taking the tryptophan and shunting it to serotonin, which is then going to become melatonin. Yeah, most so that's people... Interesting. Um, most people think like the tart cherry is always advertised like it has natural melatonin, which is true, but at such a low level as to be like, I would say kind of irrelevant, but right. tryptophan has two choices. It can either naturally convert to kynurenin or to 5-HTP and then to serotonin, then to settle serotonin, then to melatonin. So um, you're getting it into that tryptophan can go both to serotonin and melatonin then. And we think that's the primary reason it's helping sleep in the people it helps. Do you want to hear about the one health hack that is sure to change your life? Okay, here it is. Subscribing to this podcast. 67% of listeners aren't following the show, so please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free. What do you do, let's say, moving on to gut health, right? That's uh, you know, that's a topic for a lot of people. What do you do for, so what are the some of the top things you do for gut health? So I think the first thing I really want to do, like first two things are one, understand how much stress hormones are affecting gut barrier function. You know, obviously CRF and cortisol and others can loosen the tight junctions in the gut and let more, more inflammatory stuff through. And then along with that, try to figure out on the food sensitivity side, um, you know, we're really, 
I'm really found there's a work that was done a year and a half ago out of a, a Belgian lab that basically showed you can have these allergies in the lining of your gut, but you can't test for them in the blood. And so, you know, we believe that's the majority of food sensitivities where you won't show up with allergies in your blood. And so you can't really test for them except for elimination diets. And so I'm a huge fan of elimination diets and using that in combination with healing the gut. So I think those two are my first two. And then obviously lots of stuff you can do to heal the gut, fibers, you know, different amino acids to provide, you know, raw materials for the gut to heal. Um, I think curcumin is doing more work in the gut than in the blood than most people think. I think it's almost all working in the gut and that's fine that it's not absorbed. I think it's doing a lot of great work there. Magnesium, things like that. Have you ever had food sensitivities yourself? Yeah, I actually have a several of them. And it's been, if I could only pick one change I've made to my life, that could be the most powerful, that and fragrance sensitivities. Interesting. Is that what got you into health in general? You know, it's not. Um, I got into this because of like interest and my interest in biology. Um, but once I got into it and I saw how powerful these tools were, then obviously you start to ask questions about yourself and like, wait a sec, like, why do I have low energy in the morning? I actually had really low energy in the morning and felt better in the afternoon. And the reason was two reasons. One, the food sensitivity stuff, because of what I was eating for lunch was nuking me. I'm sorry, for breakfast, for breakfast. That was oh, okay. Okay. And also though, like, you know, put on like hair gel, deodorant, those fragrances were causing a ton of um, inflammation in my nose and other areas. And it was giving me brain fog in the morning. Interesting. Okay. So this is really interesting stuff because I had tons of food sensitivities and I've researched this to death. And, um, I mean, a lot of the same conclusions that I had as well is that you're not going to test for it in the blood. Just not, yeah. doesn't, I, I actually didn't see the study that you mentioned, but, um, I just know that there hasn't ever, I haven't ever seen, a, uh, something that could actually test for it. Like I could see, okay, you're clearly sensitive to this, or I'm clearly sensitive to that. There's not going to be a, any blood tests that are going to clearly differentiate that, which is where I think genetics can be useful. Like there's. Uh, you could see certain predispositions and that could give you some tips to uh, exclude something or not. But I think that, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I've been playing around with ways to counteract the food sensitivities. And what, what do you, like uh, you mentioned some, I, I want to get your opinion first. You mentioned some of the uh, amino acids. Uh, tell me what, like, what do you do for, food sensitivities besides obviously most of the answers you exclude what you're sensitive to that takes care of the problem. But, um, I think a lot of people are just going to continue eating what they're sensitive to. Number one, uh, they're not going to find everything they're sensitive to number two. And I, I happen to think that there's a wide range of sensitivities, meaning like I kind of think a lot of people are sensitive to a lot of things at some point in their life or at some time in the day or, you know, kind of like depends on what else is going on in their life. Right. It's kind of like a lot of variables at play. And, and you see that because you see people talking about like, oh, yeah, I got a food coma. You're not supposed to get a food coma, even if you <laughs> eat a lot. Like I can drink a whole, you know, uh, cup of, of glucose and I'm not going to get a food coma. Right. So it's not just from the sugar. 
it's you know it could uh, contribute to it a little bit maybe but there's something else going on if you get a food coma you've got food sensitivity right like on some level you are sensitive to whatever you ate yeah often, right would you agree like, with that i think very often i think some people can get the sugar spike and crash but then that's almost like you have a food sensitivity to glucose in like it's not really the same thing but like not everybody is as sensitive to the spike and crash of sugar but yeah i think if you're regularly eating reasonably healthy stuff and feeling terrible afterwards 100% with you you got to look into like these this food sensitivities if you're eating like whole grains and you're getting right like the, you should not get co a food coma after a, a slice of pizza let's say or uh it's just not enough glucose or carbs or anything for that matter to cause a food coma right i agree and pizza actually great example because pizza i find to be like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. What are the most common <laughs> things we see food sensitivities to? Wheat, dairy, nightshades, and alliums, like garlic and onion, stuff like that. Pizza is one of the few foods that has all four. So I find pizza to be the most common thing that will provoke food sensitivities and then the a crash for sure. 100%, right. So if you're eating one slice of pizza, that should not cause a crash if you're not sensitive to it. Even two slices, it's not like you're eating a ton, right? Like that equivalent amount of, you know, you're eating it with a meal. There's dairy, there's fat. It shouldn't, it's not going to like. 500 cause calories huge, maybe. Like, yeah, it, it shouldn't. No, it shouldn't cause any kind of, you know, uh, serious massive rush of blood flow to your gut that, you know, you're, you're lacking blood to your brain. Uh, either your system is weak in some way or out of balance because it means you're, you're really insulin insensitive or you're. Your blood pressure is very low and any kind of meal that, you know, drives blood away from your brain, you're, you're, you're about, you know, you're getting into a food coma. Like either there's some uh, uh, a serious metabolic imbalance or there's a food sensitivity. That's kind of how I see it. And okay. so, uh, so what do you do for these food sensitivities besides excluding the food? Elimination so diet. Wanna, as much as possible, want to heal the gut barrier. So you know, for the food sensitivity to have, or for your body to have a reaction to it, what we know is you don't even have more immune cells, but the immune cells live closer to the nerve. So when they release histamine and other compounds, like the nervous system gets bombarded, so you get that pain, bloating, poor motility. And so what do we want to do? We want to prevent those food compounds from getting through into the gut lining. And so that means how do we heal the gut lining? You know, for some people, um, glutamine can really help. We see some benefits from glycine as speaking of amino acids, as well as theanine to lower the kind of stress hormone response. Um, we're looking at lowering the overall physiological, psychogenic, and physiological stress hormone levels. You know, for some people, like I'll go old school, like psyllium fiber can really help. Um, you know, that feeds the good bacteria in your gut microbiome. Probiotics obviously can help some people as well. Um, so yeah, like kind of lowering inflammation and stress hormone levels and then protecting gut barrier function and supporting the microbiome. And also, you know, the other thing that I think is underrated is like, if you've got an irritant in your gut, I want it to move through. I don't want it to be there for too long. So I don't want you to have diarrhea and move through too fast, but I want to have plenty of magnesium and fiber and other things on board to make sure things are moving through quickly. So you're not just exposed to it for a long, long time. Cool. I think those are all good recommendations, solid recommendations. Uh, one of the, the things that 
I've discovered recently this this uh, I think there's three things that were the biggest game changers for me with food sensitivities: butyrate, tryptophan, and uh, niacin. And uh, and and so tryptophan, like basically, I I, I discovered tryptophan because it was um, I was reading about how indoles and the aryl hydrocarbon receptor was creating immune tolerance in the gut. And I and, and that was coming along with tryptophan a lot because that is the main way that you create these indoles in the gut. And then and like you said, you, you know, you consume tryptophan, it goes to the kynurin pathway or the serotonin pathway. There's actually a third thing that it does that creates the indoles. So there's three things that it goes into. All of those kynurin is actually important uh increases T regulatory cells as well. Serotonin is very important for the gut to increase motility and, and you know, other things as well. And then there's these indoles, which create tolerance. And so tryptophan is the way to basically get all of those things in one. Uh, now, niacin is also good in that uh, your body can, you know, a lot of people are, I think, are deficient in niacin. And your body creates niacin from tryptophan if it doesn't have enough. So number one is it, it it gives you enough niacin so your body doesn't have to do that. But number two, niacin itself activates a very specific receptor that only that and butyrate does. It's called the GPR109A receptor that is very important in creating tolerance in the gut. So, you know, the, the combination of butyrate, niacin, and tryptophan, I found dramatically reduced food sensitivities. I love yeah. the self-experimentation. Along that line, one other thing I will mention um, so butyrate is obviously a short chain fatty acid. So when I give magnesium in these cases, often I'll give it magnesium citrate and citrate's also a short chain fatty acid. I think the citrate is having a big effect too. So might be something to play with. I think, you know, this is the cool thing is like, if, if we can help people understand what all the potential experiments are. And then, like you said, Hey, I, somebody tried resistant starch, but like you, I don't do potato resistant starch. So then they realize, oh man, you have to try green banana or whatever other source you can use. Um, so yeah, I'm totally with you that, um, and each of these had like, each of the, you know, the short chain fatty acids are a category, but like you said, each of them has a different way they're affecting the body. And so um, I've actually been running experiments personally with 5-HTP recently on for gut stuff. And um, I'm sort of not done with the series of experiments, but definitely some interesting effects personally as well. Honestly, whenever uh, yeah. we can, I like to go further away from the biochemical pathway. Like, you know, you could give someone L-DOPA, which will be, is the immediate precursor to dopamine, but I'd much rather give you tyrosine because you're going to, you're not going to create tolerance or you're not going to become less sensitive to it as quickly if it's further back physiological pathways. And you can also just monitor your kidney function, right? Like we, with our clients, we're looking at blood tests. And so if some, if your kidney function starts to get worse, then we're going to see it and I love, I love the ability of blood tests to help you optimize for the short and long-term, right? Like somebody you're optimizing for short-term, someone's feeling better, but you got to make sure it's not causing some weird effect. We see people, I'd say the most frequent one is people are feeling a lot better based on something we're doing, but their ApoB is going the wrong way or something like that. And so you have to just, you just have to think about how to manage it. 100%. I love that. I love that. Um, I, I really think that you know, there, there's two ways. There's a couple ways to know if something's good for you. One is how you feel. And that's stuff like cognitive function, mood, 
you're not gonna there's no blood test for cognitive function <laughs> and mood right <laughs> energy levels like what's your blood test for energy levels so uh, you know um i don't I don't know if there are really many i mean, you could check iron this is indirect stuff but um kind of uh you know uh but then you have the stuff that is like okay how long am I going to live? Like my kidney's going to, you know, my kidney's malfunctioning. How's my liver doing? How's my heart doing? How's my, uh, do you, do you check cholesterol? What, what's your take on the whole cholesterol stuff? I you know, always open to new data, but as best I can tell right now, I look at ApoB as a predictive marker. Um, and I look at it as the most predictive of the different markers there, along with things like LP, a little, um, so yeah, you know, I'm like the people who are really focused on carbohydrates and insulin, like, yes, I want low insulin also, but I do believe that cholesterol levels are predictive. That doesn't mean you want to necessarily put it on the floor with statins, but I do want to, I won't personally want a lower ApoB level. Something a little bit surprising that I came away with um, is that LDL, there's no question that ApoB, LPA, and uh, you know, uh, lip lipoproteins increase heart disease, but it seems like there's a protective effect against infections. You look at all the studies on lowering LDL; uh, they all show lower mortality from cardiovascular disease, but they don't show lower overall death risk. Right? When the other and the diet one was a plant-based diet, so you go on a plant-based diet you're lowering your cholesterol levels, right? I, I think that's pretty clear, almost always. Uh, but you don't see lower mortality on a plant-based diet. You see lower cardiovascular disease. That's just think, based well, on- I think the yeah. big question, so yeah, tracking what you're saying there, I think it's a really nice analysis. I think the big question is, the studies haven't really been done on PCSK9 inhibitors yet. So my question is, if you, because no, there's no studies on just PCSK9 inhibitors. By the way, I love that frame. Like, what do we really care about to all cause mortality? Meaning like, right. like you said, overall death, like if something makes you have less heart disease, but more cancer is like, that's not a good trade. I want to make it, I want it to make me live longer. Right. Like, right. So, I and totally then the other thing. It. Yeah. And then, and, and one of the other, there's a lot of lines of evidence that kind of were, was pointing to this direction. One of the other ones is, you, you know, I, I also heard this from a lot of people and I looked it up myself and they weren't actually cherry picking as much as I thought. You know, the low carb or like they, I thought they were cherry picking more than they were that, you know, people who are older actually do better with higher LDL cholesterol. And I, I, I looked into it and it was actually like the vast majority of studies show that, right? The big, big studies, very significant studies showed that they're like 140 was like an optimal cholesterol level, especially if you're older. One of the things I think is interesting and still to be seen is like, you know, there's two reasons you can have lower cholesterol when you're older. One can be the good reasons, like good diet working out. The other reason is like you're really sick and your body just doesn't have the ability to, and you're not eating a lot and things like that. And so I think that's one of the challenge with those observational studies is like, how do we, how do we know for sure lower is better or worse when you're older? If some of the reason people do poorly when they're, um, you know, when they're older is because they're sick. It's like, there's these studies from, on sun exposure from Scandinavia. And look, I think non-burning sun exposure is probably good for you um, long-term. But 
one of the interpretations which shows that if people who get a lot sun versus who get very little live longer is if you're sick and you don't go outside a lot, then maybe that's a reason. But so it's always hard to kind of disentangle. But that being said, um, I'm going to work off the best data I have and then change my mind if something comes up. And for right now, I don't want to get sunburned, but I want to get some sun exposure. And, you know, if you want to make sure for the vanity thing, maybe you can protect your face, maybe get it on your, you know, your torso instead if you're, you don't want your you know, skin to look older. Give uh, people a little hope. We see stepwise improvements. You don't have to go all the way to vegan. We see stepwise improvements from removing red meat to removing white meat. So fish and, you know, the sort of a pescatarian fish focused one, we see give a lot of the benefits because a lot of people, frankly, don't want to go vegetarian. Um, and again, red meat's okay for some people, but for a lot of people, we see ApoB fall quite substantially. They cut red meat out of their diet. So again, these are different experiments you can run. It's like a step from red meat to white meat to fish to potentially if you're open to eating vegetarian vegan. Okay, let's go to um, cognitive performance. What do you do? What's your approach to cognitive performance? And and actually, let's back up a little bit. You you talk about people. You encourage people to do n equals one experiments, and that's kind of also what I do. In I mean, I don't do a lot of coaching, but if I do, that's it's it's something I definitely encourage people to do. Um, how do you like? What? How do you? How do you guide them to do these n equals one experiments? I think some. In some ways, going to a more, let's call it extreme version of an experiment is really useful to understand kind of what's going on. However, some of them, we definitely see kind of an inverted U relationship where it helps, it helps, it helps, and then too much of it starts to hurt. And so it's tricky because I think triple the dose of some things could push you into a zone where you would have gotten benefits, but then you won't. So I think, you know, I think it kind of depends. Like, give me an example of what that is. I'm talking about triple the dosage of what's on the label. Yep. So I'm talking about like, for example, I mentioned earlier, cocoflavanols. These in some people can give you an energy boost, but decrease stress cortisol levels. And they can kind of break the link between cortisol and um, inflammatory stuff. But they're also stimulatory because they have some, not a lot of caffeine in it, but they have some like um, other theoxanthines and theobromines in there. Um, and so some people will get jittery from it if you give too high a dose. And so they're you know, you're, so basically you give too high a dose, someone's jittery, whereas if we're lower, they don't get jittery, they get the benefits. So that can be kind of an example. But sometimes you could also predict based on like, okay, I, it was a little too much. I liked it, but it was just a little too much. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think like, you know, we're not even, um, we're not just experimenting with what it is, totally the dose and also the timing, you know, it's, if you take a multivitamin or vitamin C and E before you work out, you lose 50% of the value of your workout. So like maybe in somebody that's a, a good supplement, but you got to do it later in the day or something like that, you know. What, what, why do you lose 50% of the value of the workout? So the vitamin C and E, the antioxidants, basically soak up some of the free radicals and that oxidative stress and those free radicals are signaling molecules that tell your muscles to produce more mitochondria. And so, but you're essentially like blocking the signaling pathway. You need to produce more mitochondria. So you get like half the new mitochondria when you take C and E before you work it. And most multivitamins have C and E in it. 
And and so when do you want to take it, uh, any kind of antioxidants? Like, if, what if you take it four hours before or two hours after? After, you know, afterwards is generally fine because they take a little bit of time to get in your system. Maybe you'd wait 30 minutes or whatever. That's fine. Um, depends on the biological elimination profile, but usually like six hours is definitely safe. Almost always four hours is probably fine, um, but I definitely would yeah, before. Okay, interesting. And uh, okay, and so in terms of um, let's say cognitive performance, what 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 kind of things are you recommending uh, in terms of cognitive performance? So yeah, so let's talk about focus as one example of cognitive performance. Um, first thing I need to do is decrease or modulate your stress hormone levels because, you know, cortisol prevents you from bringing glucose into your prefrontal cortex. So I want to make sure you got plenty of fuel in the brain. Second, inflammation also causes you to tamp down your prefrontal activity. So I got to make sure inflammation is good. Um, for some people on, on the stress hormone stuff, we're going to use things like to help there as well. Um, we like those cocoplavanols and I've mentioned them a few times because um, they're kind of a fun compound. They also increase blood vessel flexibility and blood flow. And um, we mentioned tyrosine earlier, which, you know, some people feel jittery from it or can even get a headache, but because it's a precursor to dopamine and adrenaline. But for the people it works for, um, can really help you drop into a deeper level of focus, but really like taking on an empty stomach because, you know, you've got a ton of amino acids in your blood when you eat. And so if you take an extra one gram of tyrosine, it's not like, putting your tyrosine levels that much higher than every other amino acid. But if you take it on an empty stomach, we often find you get this big effect. So um, it sometimes combine things like the and tyrosine. So, but also because you can develop an insensitivity to it, try not to do that more than like three or four times a week. So those are just some examples. Like we want to make sure you're taking your foot off the brake in the car. You want the car to go faster, take your foot off the brake. So that's stress hormones and inflammation. And then there's some tricks we can use to put the foot on the gas a little bit. What about, let's say, human performance? Like uh, you're getting athletes, Navy SEALs, they want to improve their physical performance. What are you recommending for them? I'd say the biggest thing we focus on there often is recovery. If they recover faster, they can push harder in workouts. They can do it more often. They don't get hurt. Um, so what are some things we like for recovery? We do pretty high dose omega-3 fatty acids as long as you don't have any stress problems. Um, so we're looking at like several grams a day, um, three or more grams of um, fish oil. We're looking at things like uh, cold processed tart cherry juice. Again, and I'll mention that one twice. Um, you know, if you, even at refrigerator temperatures, tart cherry juice loses a lot of the most powerful anthocyanins. They break down even in refrigerators. So you got to find stuff that's stored frozen and concentrate. Um, we're looking at, you know, the right amino acid profile. So some people like whey protein is more anabolic. You put more muscle on, but some people get a food sensitivity issue to it. Or some people, it just upregulates the immune system. So other people will use collagen and there's some of those collagen peptides especially when you combine them with zinc and vitamin C that can increase soft tissue recovery. Um, so it's like, also, how do you get your sympathetic activity, your fight or flight system to come back down 
to calm very quickly after you work out. So you're recovering faster. I mean, that could be breath work. That could be supplements. That could be um, eating also can help. So kind of all those pieces together. But yeah, I love, love thinking about recovery for athletes. Also just for an injury. So recovering quicker is, is the name of the game. And so you're doing piece. that. Yeah. I like, also, I like that. The research that shows the people who make it into special operations units, the best research we have shows that it's people whose brains can continue to perform under stress. So, you know, obviously we think a lot about, you know, a Navy SEAL physical and they're very impressive physically, but a lot of it is the ability of the brain to perform well under stress. And so we want to think about how to modulate your sympathetic nervous system, how to allow you to like peak really high. It's not that they don't have big like cortisol or other stress hormone releases. It's just they come back down to normal really quickly. And so they recover fast. Interesting. What about some of the amino acids? Like just to throw, I mean, maybe you tell me, uh, what do you think of the amino acids for recovery? Different. Yeah, I think for, you know, depending on the person, like these amino acid profiles for muscle building, definitely real. Um, you know, from branch chain, we've gone to more like a full spectrum essential amino acid. Um, instead of just branching amino acids. Um, but which amino acids in particular do you think are important for recovery? I mean, I know there's like a lot of work for like muscle building in particular, but I think you really have to give a full spectrum because there's, if you push yourself physically hard, your gut needs to recover in addition to your muscles. So that's why I'm big on like really on full spectrum, um, like a, using a full spectrum essential amino acid as opposed to just single ones there. Um, okay. Interesting. Um, but there's like certain ones like glutamine isn't an essential one. Do you give that for recovery? Only if there's only if we think there's like gut stuff going, uh, we'll give that more okay. for like gut stuff, but it doesn't help recovery in general or, um, I don't think it's as strong, um, you know, as like leucine, you know, isoleucine valine for the muscles um very strong um lysine's so, interesting you know with the like you know i'm i'm interested to see if it's broad spectrum antiviral but definitely works with herpes recurrences so super interesting to think about lysine in the immune system too do you find that uh urea levels go up um with high protein diets pretty consistently it's interesting i would say not, I don't see it in that many of our clients unless they're on a very high protein diet. Um, so I guess it depends what we mean by high protein diet, but you know, and again, like, I think it depends what, how much, you know, do you mean like, you know, it's up 10%, but in the normal range, maybe then, but like, we don't see it go, you know, what you think of as clinically elevated. Yeah. We're very lucky in today's day and age, we have access to more advanced blood tests. We, you know, we can't, we can go beyond what we used to have. And so we can ask these questions like, hey, something shows up abnormal, let's go deeper. And so I think that's, you know, that's the approach we like to take too, is like, okay, is there really a problem here? It's like the old I'm taking creatine stuff. Doctors got nervous because your creatinine went up. Well, you're, of course your creatinine is going to go up when you have more, basically your body uses creatine, it breaks down into creatinine. And so your kidneys are filtering out maybe the same proportion, but you're still filtering 80%, you've got, you've started with more, so you've got more. And so doctors got nervous when in reality, there's no evidence creatine negatively impacts kidney health in normal people. So I think it's like, you know, 
the ability to go deeper today is really exciting. What do you look for in terms of an optimal number for ApoB? I think if somebody has a family history, you know, if I were just talking to somebody or for myself, if I, even, if I had a family history of heart disease, I'm going to look for under, under 80, maybe under 70 if I'm a young person, um, just to not build up that lifetime risk. You know, I think the thing about the Peter Atia go all the way down to 30 thing is a lot of that is an extrapolation, certainly mechanistically, but also of these people who have PCSK9 mutations naturally, who have blood levels like that. But there's a difference between you and I and somebody who was born with that mutation, which is their body grew up physiologically adapted to very low ApoB levels. And my body did not grow up physiologically adapted to very low ApoB levels. So even though they don't seem to have problems from it, if you drop mine that way, I've had you know 30 plus years at, that, at a higher level, it doesn't mean I'll have the same reaction because physiologically I didn't adapt to it. So that's my concern about those ultra low levels that we don't really have much data on. I like that. That's a really, that's a really smart answer. And I would also add, and this is kind of where the genetics comes in. Um, I, I've, I've wrote like part of the blog post that I'm, I wrote was how did, what do you, what, how do you make a decision based on all this information? You said, okay, if you have a family history, right? So one of the things we do is we, we give you like a questionnaire. Basically part of that is like your family history, certain things you smoke, do you do like kind of the known risk factors. And you can look at your non-genetic risk, right? You want to also look at all of your lab tests related to cardiovascular disease risk, like inflammation, all that stuff. And then the the other the last thing, which hasn't really been in use, and I think you might find it interesting as well, is a polygenic risk score for heart disease and atherosclerosis. So if you have that predisposition, if you're, let's say, uh, for example, in the 80th percentile for cardiovascular disease, that makes you three times higher risk for cardiovascular disease based on the polygenic risk score, based on the, the work that we've done at Self-Decode. So that is like a very critical missing factor. I think that's going to get into the healthcare system. We're trying to get it in there as soon as possible. It does take a while, but I think like there are doctors on the cutting edge that are already ordering these tests, uh, like trying to figure out like a polygenic risk score. And, and I think P Peter Tia, uh, he mentions polygenic risk scoring for uh, cardiovascular disease here and there. But I think that's also a missing factor where you want to look at all of your lab tests, your lifestyle, environmental risk, and then also genetic risk. Um, and that, that helps you determine what level you want to get it to. And so I think, and also your age, like you said, right? So I think that's actually, I came to a similar conclusion, right? 70 to 80, if you, if you're at higher risk for based on, a whole bunch of different factors, right? Genetics, lab tests, and and environmental. Very cool. Likewise, man, I like yeah. the way you think about this stuff. It's like, you know, the nuance matters here. So you're saying like, I want this, but maybe at this age, I'll change my opinion. You know, like higher protein diets at older age seem to be more protective versus at lower age, maybe they cause problems. So like all these things matter. There's all these nuances. And I think as we can bring more and more tools, whether it's polygenic risk scoring, whether it's ways deeper insights into labs, whether it's end of one experimentation, I think all of these tools over time are going to help us get to where we all want to be, which is like 
We want to live longer and have better quality of life. Your there opinions. is a real challenge of in this industry of a lot of people with not bringing a lot of nuance and technical understanding. And so, you know, that's definitely, you know, our mission at Found, what we're doing is like, one, we provide you with a coach who has that nuance. And then two, we're building software to, you know, build, give you a digital coach that can help take all this really powerful data and enable you to do it. Um, so definitely what we're doing and along the way, trying to just find cool, cool solutions, novel challenges. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, like, you know, based on our work with clients, we figured out how to solve jet lag for 95% of people. So try to just continue to bring new science and new tools to people. And I think if we do that, we're going to going to give people better lives. Let's talk a little bit about um, jet lag. So, you know, people travel. Uh, let, let's talk about the jet lag story. How do you get rid of jet lag for people? So I'll try to do the, the real short version of this, but we were working with, I was, I was trying to solve a problem for the Navy SEAL community, um, learned that based on research the Navy had done, that when you come up from being submerged scuba diving and you come to the surface, so when you go from higher pressure to lower pressure, you can actually get an inflammatory response due to that. And fast forward to working with clients who are, you know, flying to Asia from the US to close business deals and like they'd land and the other side would want to negotiate at 6 a.m., 7 a.m. the next morning. And they're like, Andrew, we're getting killed here. Like we don't sleep and they're using jet lag as a negotiating tool. And so basically long story short, we realized that this high pressure to low pressure inflammatory response was present when you fly. So when you take off, you go from um, higher pressure at sea level up to you know five to 8,000 foot relative altitude pressure in the plane. And people are getting an inflammatory response. It is a huge reason why you can't shift your circadian rhythm quickly. And so what we figured out how to do was we use supplements at specific timing and at specific intervals to mitigate this inflammatory response, tamp it down, and then to give you more, use the anti-inflammatory effects to give you more energy when you haven't had enough sleep, and then use all the tools, light, supplements, meal time, exact quantities of napping during the trip to rapidly shift your circadian rhythm. And we're now seeing 90 to 95% of people can go to Europe, Asia, Africa, Australia, and sleep while they're first night. Um, so interesting. Okay. Well, l I want to talk about that a little more because I I'm assuming that, you know, th there's, you know, there's a whole program here, but, um, I find going from, let's say, uh, you know, going like sleeping later is not a problem. That's easier to, to shift. So if I go from Europe to the U S right, there's, uh, um, so let's say if I'm in the U.S., then, you know, um, I could just stay up later and that right. shifts it automatically. The problem, the bigger problem is going back. <laughs> <laughs> then, all of a, you know, you're up till like six in the morning and you want to go to sleep earlier. So I guess what I do is, you know, I, I, I obviously try to get the light. I try to do, you know, there's a bunch of hacks there. Um, and then also I'm relying more on melatonin. Um, what do you do on the way back? Well, besides, uh, now you're also saying reduce inflammation on the flight. Okay. Right. Yep. Is that. So oh, you have to okay. reduce inflammation. You need to preload the body before you get on the flight. And then you're basically using, we have an algorithm that customizes it, but you're using 
doses of flavanols and ascorbic acid and high dose omega-3 fatty acids. So you're using these at different intervals and different timing based on your trip. And then what are we doing when we go over? So I'm going to give you less than a full night's sleep going over. So if you're going to Europe from the U.S., you're going to get three to four and a half hours of sleep on the night over. And, but we're going to mitigate the negative effects of not having enough sleep. And then we're going to use that to also like, we're going to use um, insulin signaling and uh, meal timing and light to lock your circadian rhythm in place. So I'm going to give you less sleep. So I'm going to have you typically sleep, depends on your flight timing, obviously, but let's say four and a half hours. So you're going to wake up in the morning at your destination. And then we're going to lock your circadian rhythm in. And then by the time you get that night to that night, you're going to be tired. And we're going to use melatonin, not really to put you to sleep, but as a timing signal to your brain. So the original research on melatonin shows that it's like a, they call it a Zeitgeber, a timing signal. And so we may use a dose in the afternoon, a dose kind of closer to bed. And as a kind of telling your brain, it's going to be time to go to bed soon. And then that plus the blue light glasses to filter out blue light, um, we can usually land somebody to sleep well that night. So it's, it's the, you're saying the, the first night is the most critical where you, you do like an intentional, I mean, you know, they, they're waking up in the morning at a normal time, even if they're going to sleep at six in the morning or whatever. Right. And, um, and, and yeah, then they're going to be so tired. Going yeah. to Europe, you usually sleep on the flight, right? Right. So, and yeah, then they're going to be so the tired they can go or, uh, go to sleep earlier. But I got to make it so you don't feel t so bad the first day that you don't take a nap. So there's like a. So what are some of the things balance. you do for that? Um, so smaller, more frequent meals, super are super helpful. Light exposure, high dose omega three fatty acids at high frequency. I've been shown in military studies to give people more alertness um, throughout the, you know, when you've been sleep deprived. And um, in addition, some of the anti-inflammatory, the other anti-inflammatory stuff. So those are kind of the big things. Plus we'll use caffeine at specific times and insulin signaling to kind of wake up or, or reset the circadian clocks in your gut, liver, et cetera. We've made a product called FlyKit that has all those things. You download the app, put in your flights and information. We give you a kit with all the supplements and then it, it does all the timing, gives you reminders when to do everything. So we want to make it life easy for you. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. No, it's, uh, that's great. No, I, I really like, um, the, the information that, uh, you shared. I, I, like I said, I feel like there's a whole bunch more that, uh, I could learn from you, but. Well, um, hey, maybe we can do another, maybe we can do another episode someday. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Awesome. So, uh, is there anything else you want to say? Any, anywhere people could find you? Anything? Yep. So, um, you can visit us. Our website is fount.bio, F O U N T dot B I O. You can check us out there. Uh, we're also on Twitter, on Instagram, and I'm on Twitter at Andrew Her Bio, Andrew H E R R B I O, Twitter. So, come say hi. Let us know if we can help. Um, and, you know, you can get a free consult anytime through our website. Awesome. Awesome. It was great having you on. Thanks so much, Joe. It was a pleasure. 67% of listeners aren't following the show, so please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, 
all while helping to keep us ad-free.